We're going to continue with our sermon series called Storytime this morning. We just wrapped up the book of Genesis and some of those amazing narratives about Joseph. And as we see how God was present with Joseph through the good times and the bad and faithful to his people, we're going to see the story of God's people continue in the book of Exodus. And really, to understand Exodus, you have to look at it in relationship and with the context of Genesis as well. At the the end of Genesis, Israel is basically a clan of about 70 people, and they are about to explode in population as a sign of God's blessing to them. And there's some interesting parallels between Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis chapter 3, there's the curse of God. And now in Exodus, we see the Israelites just under extreme toil and Harsh slavery. In Genesis, we see the salvation of humankind being promised in Genesis 3 through the birth of a child. So too, through the birth of Moses, is God going to provide a deliverer for the people in Exodus. But what really connects Exodus to Genesis is God's promise to make Israel a great nation. And it's here in Exodus 1 we see this great, rapid population growth. Would you please stand with me now? We're going to read some of the account in Exodus together. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the ushers will provide a red Bible for you. We're actually going to cover Exodus chapters 1 through 4 this morning, but right now we're going to read a very well-known account. This is the account of Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And a land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? And who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, They will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? 
God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Please go ahead and take a seat this morning. As you think about your life, have you ever sensed that God is clearly calling you to do something? Maybe even something pretty courageous? Perhaps something that could alter the course of your life or maybe the the life of your family members? You sensed this, you knew it, and yet you you just couldn't step up and do what God was calling you to do. I think if we're honest, we've all had... Scenarios like that, at least in in some measure. Thankfully, God is a gracious God, He's a patient God, and He's a persistent God. And we're going to find that out in the story of Moses in Exodus 1 through 4 today. And this takes place in Egypt. Egypt has a special place in my heart. Got a picture, a couple of pictures here. I have uh, a sister in law and her husband, and they live in Egypt. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the media, the media will say things about different countries and you're thinking, I am never going to that country. Doesn't Egypt look a lot more fun than what you hear about in the media? Look at this. They look like they're having a great time. Look at that. I would love to go visit them in Egypt someday. So they, they answered God's call to move to Egypt, live and work in Egypt. In Egypt. And uh, God's been faithful to them. We're excited for them as well as they, as they make an impact there. Now, in Exodus 1, the Israelites are few in number, and then they're all of a sudden exploding in population. Verse 7 says, But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. See, this verse, verse 7, covers almost a 400-year gap covering the time of Joseph's death to the time of the Exodus. Now, you might think, this is kind of odd. Why would there be a 400-year gap of silence in the biblical text? But then we might remember that this also happens uh, between the post-exilic prophets like Malachi and the New Testament. So even in this silence in the biblical text of 400 years, God is at work. God is committed to his plan. He's going to carry out exactly what he said he would do. God is still at work. I've got a picture of the of a chronology of Exodus, and you can see on the top left, between the time of prosperity of, of chapter 1-7 and the persecution, it's about 430 years that that all takes place. So God is extremely patient in carrying out his purposes. So what happens here in the narrative is there's a new king and a new pharaoh that comes to power in Egypt. See, he doesn't know the history of Joseph and how Joseph's oversight led to all this blessing for Egypt. You might think, why doesn't this king know about this? Is he just choosing to ignore it, or do you truly not know? Interesting to think about. You know, it's possible that he's just choosing to ignore that, although it's not uncommon for entire civilizations to not record certain aspects of their history if it includes something that they don't want recorded. Joseph wasn't necessarily one of their own. Maybe they wrote him out of the history. But he's, in whatever case, he's not thinking about what happened, the blessing that happened for Egypt with Joseph. But what he does notice 
is that the Israelites' population is just rapidly growing, and he sees this as a big threat, whereas the people likely see this as a sign of blessing. God promised that they would multiply, and this is his presence and blessing with them. So the Pharaoh comes up with a plan. He's got a plan. He commands the Hebrew midwives that as they're helping Israelite women deliver their babies to kill any boys that are born. They're supposed to kill any boys that are born. Here's the deal, though. The midwives actually fear God more than the Pharaoh. They believe in God. They fear God. They allow these baby boys to live, and God actually blesses them with for that, and they have their own families as well. Pharaoh's not too pleased about this. He needs plan B. So Pharaoh says, okay, now we're going to go around the community and every newborn baby boy is going to be thrown into the Nile River. So the, mid, the midwives didn't stop it. Now we're going to go in. We're going to throw all these babies in the river. Pretty shocking. Now, for those of you familiar with the New Testament, it's interesting. This is a bit of a foreshadowing of Matthew 2.15 when King Herod is going to order the death of all male babies to and under. So you see, the evil one is constantly trying to thwart the, the plans of God, whether it's in Exodus or in the New Testament. He's trying to stop Moses. He's trying to stop the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, as we think about this mass murder order, it's pretty shocking. And yet, thinking about our own uh, context today, we know that the modern-day abortion industry is pretty shocking, with hundreds of thousands of of babies being aborted in, in America alone each year. Um, as followers of Jesus, we value life and we, and we find this unacceptable. Now, I'm really excited about the way that our church um, supports a great ministry called the Pregnancy Care Center. We have a couple people serving there as well. And what I love about the Pregnancy Care Center is it's not just, it's one thing to be against something, and say, and to let your opinion be known or to hold a sign, but it's another thing to do something about it, to back up what you believe. And people that serve at the Pregnancy Care Center actually come alongside women and encourage them to keep that child, or they come alongside somebody who has had an abortion and tell them the amazing news of God's grace and mercy and new plan for their life. They also come alongside the men, the husbands, the boyfriends, and help them be the men that God's calling them to be. And that collective effort actually changes things, makes a difference. It's, it's putting our money where our mouth is. It's walking the walk. So I'm, I'm excited about that ministry and our support of it here at Bethany Church. So Pharaoh is inflicting great suffering upon the Israelites. Great suffering. And here's point number one. God may allow suffering before deliverance. God's people have already experienced a mix of suffering and deliverance, and here they are again in a season of suffering. In the midst of this harsh labor and murderous attempts on their baby male population, can you see how these people, how the Israelites might have felt like God was perhaps disinterested in their life about what was happening, about the extreme suffering that they had? Now, we may not have experienced this kind of terrible slavery and harsh labor. Uh, But if you're honest, you can probably at least relate to the experience of feeling that maybe God isn't aware of what you're going through. That maybe God isn't interested in the personal affairs of your life, the trials that you're enduring. Just feeling some distance. 
I think if we're honest, that's, that's pretty natural. I heard from a pastor earlier this week. He was sharing of how a couple years ago his wife of 42 years passed away, died of cancer. And he shared of how they actually walked through seven battles of cancer before she succumbed and died. And he shared about how that was the darkest uh, season of his life, going through those seven battles of cancer and then losing her. And he, as a pastor, was wondering, where, where is God during this time? So I don't think that, you know, I want to encourage you, if you're going through something challenging, if you've gone through something challenging recently, if you feel like you're in a bit of a, a fog of darkness, you don't sense God's presence, that's not necessarily a sign of spiritual immaturity. What it is, it's the honest yearning of a heart that longs to experience God and God's presence in the midst of a very dark valley. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. And here's the thing. The book of Exodus teaches some great theology that gives us some mighty hope to, to hang on to in a time like that. This is what it is. Exodus says this. How we perceive something does not determine its reality. You see, God is present and he does care, even in our darkest times, even in our biggest struggles and trials. God is there and he cares. His providence is at work. You see, God can work with all the various circumstances of our life, of even other people's missteps and wrongdoing. God can work with all of that to accomplish his purposes. So in the midst of this suffering, the Israelites grow in numerical ways. They grow. And they're waiting to see what's going to happen next. I was thinking about where we're at as a nation recently, and you know, it's, it's, um, it's an important year. We've got some political candidates out there. Recent public opinion doesn't put a, shed a great light on any of the options. And, you know, I think it's a good thing that what we learned from Exodus is a nation's direction or security, it's not solely dependent on its leadership. God plays a role. So I think we can take courage uh, as we look into this coming year that God still has a say as we humble ourselves and pray and acknowledge his primary leadership of our lives, of our nation, of how we relate in the world. So be encouraged there as well. Point number two, God doesn't waste a single detail in our lives. He doesn't waste a single detail. In the life of Moses, some really interesting things happen, and God is in all of those details. You see, in chapter 2, Moses is born as a Hebrew, then he grows up as an Egyptian, And then he works as a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. God's preparing him through all of these details for his calling. And these these details lead to his calling as a deliverer. Chapter 2, 1, verses 2, 1 to 2 says this. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby And she kept him hidden for three months. Kept him hidden for three months. Wow, can you imagine what kind of faith that takes to to defy the order and keep your child hidden? Look Look what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Because they they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They saw that he was no ordinary child. Exodus says he was a special baby. You know, Moses was more than a cute baby. You know when you have a child, you have a grandchild, you just think, this baby is special. This baby is just so cute. 
And then years later, you look back at your Facebook posts or your baby pictures of your children, and you're thinking, they're not as cute as I thought they were when they were, what? They're actually, wow, that's really interesting. So we're, we're so, uh, it's a good thing. It really is a good thing. We, we love our kids unconditionally when they're, we just think they're so cute. And then a few years later, we can see how interesting they look when they're first born. Um, so Moses was more than a cute baby. He's the son of a mother and father from the tribe of Levi. And they discerned that he was, he was special. He was not just an ordinary child. Because they discerned that, they kept him hidden and took this risk. They had great courage. When they felt that they could no longer hide him, Moses' mom built a, a basket of reeds, waterproofed it with tar, put little baby Moses into it, and set him on the Nile River on the riverbank. And just set him there in the reeds. Can you imagine how heart-wrenching it would, it would be to do that? So Pharaoh's daughter, a princess, comes along, sees this, this little basket, and sees a baby in there. Thankfully, Moses' sister is thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to look out for my little, my little bro here. I'm going to hang around and see what's going on. So Moses' sister comes on the scene, suggests to the Pharaoh's daughter, hey, why don't I find a Hebrew woman to take care of this baby boy? Great idea, she says. So Moses ends up being cared for by his biological mother for a season. Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses when he's a little bit older, and Moses grows up as an Egyptian. Chapter 2, verse 11, following says this, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed this Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. So Moses is functioning as a deliverer early on. This is foreshadowing what's going to come. But, you know, the next day Moses gets called out on this. He sees a couple of Hebrew men fighting and says something, and they say, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you killed that other guy? So Moses is pretty concerned about this. He thinks that Pharaoh might find out. Sure enough, Pharaoh finds out Moses has to flee. He runs for his life to Midian. He runs for his life to Midian. Now, don't you think it's interesting? Moses was in, during this season in Egypt, he was educated with the highest education. He had the most prestige, the highest level of learning. He had privilege, and yet this yearning within him that his his parents had discerned something was different about him, God was working in the details even of that privilege to help him identify with his own people who were suffering. Moses identified with the suffering Egyptians. You see a parallel here with Jesus? Jesus was privileged. He's in heaven. He leaves heaven, comes to earth, adds humanity to his nature, lives a sinless life, goes to the cross for us. Jesus suffers. He identifies with us. He comes to save us. So my question is, who are we identifying with? We're followers of Jesus, right? We're, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're supposed to emulate Jesus. Who do we identify with? Can we come alongside that single mother in our neighborhood who's just struggling to make it, provide some support, some care, maybe some financial help, connect her to the help that she needs? Can we come alongside the homeless people that we see in Fresno, Clovis? Can we talk to them? Can we give them the dignity that they deserve, that they are people? Can we talk to them? Can we 
find solutions with them? Do we identify with Christian refugees, whether they're here or elsewhere? Do we advocate for them? Do we advocate for refugees in general? Jesus says, love love your neighbor. So can we minister and identify with the people that Jesus would be serving if he was here today with us right now? Something worth thinking about and praying through as we follow Jesus. So Moses sets a great example of identifying with his people that are suffering. He was pretty humble, actually, to do that, to leave his prestige and do that. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. So you can have a healthy self-esteem. You can have an identity rooted in who you are in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus. And yet you don't have to think of yourself all the time. You can think of people that are hurting and suffering. And you can look, open your eyes, and see what God is doing around you and partner with him in that. So God is calling Moses to be a deliverer. In fact, this is foreshadowed again. When he's in Midian as a, as a shepherd, he finds some, some women at a well being harassed by some shepherds. He scares away the shepherds. He waters their, the women's flock. And he ends up marrying one of these women and living in Midian for 40 years. He's in Midian for 40 years. Can you imagine the patience it takes to be to do that, to do it, Moses. He had this sense that something, there was a big calling in his life, and yet for 40 years he's in the desert with people that aren't his people living. You know, we have a hard time graduating college and waiting a few months before we get a job. We just think, wow, I can't, this, this patience is too much. Or, you know, we have family conflict and we're ready to just write off our family right away. Uh, you know, some of these things might take months and maybe years, as we are patient and see how God's working circumstances to bring reconciliation into our life and to connect us to his purpose. So Moses is in Midian. Chapter 2, 23 and following says this. Years passed, the king of Egypt dies. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. So God is now ready to act. But remember, sometimes he allows great suffering before deliverance, and he doesn't waste a single detail along the way. So now having prepared Moses, he's going to call him at the burning bush. Moses is at the mountain at Sinai. God calls out to him, and Moses says, here I am. God identifies him as the God of his ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses covers his face, and then the Lord says this, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now go, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. So God's calling Moses to partner with him by leading his people out of Egypt. See, while God is going to be directly involved in the deliverance of his people, he's going to do this through human instruments. God does this with us as well. God calls us to partner with him. Point number three in your outline. God calls us to partner with him. He called Moses... And he calls us. You know, God calls us primarily in a couple of main ways. 
First, God calls us as sinners into his kingdom. He calls us to salvation. He calls us to salvation. If you're here today and you haven't um, given thought to giving your life to Jesus and following him wholeheartedly, God is calling you to salvation today. Second, having called us to salvation, he calls each of us to kingdom service in some way, shape, or form. Last week we heard from two young women and how God is had been working in their heart and called them to missions. One to Turkey, one to Thailand, specifically for this summer and, and perhaps beyond that. And it was exciting for us as a church to hear from them how God's working in their heart. And I encourage you to pray for them, support them financially as they plan to go out on missions. But you know what? God's call is not just for people that are going on mission. It's for, it's for you and I. It's for primarily where we are right now. Whatever it is you're doing right now, remember God's in all the details. If you're in college and you're in a program and this summer you're planning to take summer classes, don't feel like that's not glamorous or something. You're going to summer school because you're on mission doing what God's called you to do. And in any context, you can be God's ambassador, whether you're in college whether you're working a part-time job, whether you have a career, whether you stay home with your children. Wherever you are, God's calling you to kingdom service. It's an adventure. It's exciting. There's no mundane life for us as followers of Jesus. We just need to open our spiritual eyes and connect to what God is doing around us so we can join him in his mission. So God's calling Moses. How does he respond to God? Are you ready for this? Moses has five excuses. Pop them up on the screen right now. Five excuses. Who am I? Who are you? What if? I can't. And the best excuse, well, really the worst excuse, send someone else. This is how Moses responds after sensing this call in his life, being prepared, 40 years in a desert, hearing God from a burning bush, and he's saying, send someone else. Amazing. First excuse, chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, you know what, Moses? It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. It's not about who Moses is. It's about whose he is. Same with us. It's not about who you are. It's about whose you are. You are God's child. You are Christ's ambassador if you follow him as your Lord and Savior. Where do we find our identity? Moses is looking to the wrong place. So God says, I'm going to be with you, and as a sign that you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this very mountain. Now the problem in Moses' mind is that sign comes after the people all leave Egypt. Moses is, Moses is thinking, I need something right now. I don't have enough faith to lead the people out of Egypt. He says to God, he says, who are you? Verse 13, Moses says, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? God tells him this. He says, look, I'm the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them that's who I am. They know me. They know that God. Moses is still struggling with this. Verse uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses protests again. What if they won't believe me or they won't listen to me? What if they say that the Lord never appeared to you? Moses is clearly guilty of unbelief here. But before we get too hard on Moses, let's think about this. Have you ever faced 
personally, have you ever faced a group of skeptics and then had to convince them that God sent you to talk to them based on a conversation you had with a bush? Fair enough. Probably not, right? So (laughs) Moses has some unbelief here. Uh, We likely would as well. So this is what God does. He says, I'm going to give you the ability to do some miracles, and then people are going to believe you, okay? So he says, you have a staff. Throw the staff down. It's going to turn into a snake. Pick it up by the tail. It's a staff again. If that doesn't work, put your hand inside your cloak. Pull it out. It's going to be white with leprosy. Put it back in. All good. Finally, if they don't believe that, take some water from the Nile River and splash it on the ground. It's going to turn to blood. Aren't these cool miracles? This would be actually... A lot of fun to perform these. Now, surely these miracles were impressive enough that the people would believe the burning bush account, right? So if they're going to believe these miracles, it makes good sense. and It's reasonable that they would then believe that Moses talked to God at the burning bush. But Moses isn't, he's still not ready. Chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I can't. Moses pleads with God. He says, Lord, I'm not good with words. I've never been, and I'm not now. Even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied. My words get tangled up. I can't do this, God. God says, look, who even makes your mouth and decides whether you can use it? Then he gets firm. He's like, go. I'm going to be with you as you speak, and I'll instruct you what to say. So you think Moses is good now, right? No, he's not. And really, this is, this is false humility on Moses' part. If you look at Acts 7:21 and following, look what, look what Stephen says in Acts When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Hold on a second. Powerful in speech and action? Moses was powerful in speech and action, and yet he's telling God, I can't do this. I get tongue-tied. So, God... uh, He's not happy. What does Moses do? Is he ready to listen now? One more excuse. Chapter 4, 13. Send someone else. You might feel like part of your points in your life, you're like looking up towards heaven and just so in tune with what God's... And you're just saying, God, send me. And you're just so willing. Whatever God wants to do in your life, you're just earnestly seeking, God, What? where am I going? Send me. Well, this is the opposite. Moses is like, don't send me. <laughs> send someone else. Moses says, um, or Moses pleaded with God, Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, what about your brother Aaron? I know he speaks well. Okay, so Moses is out of excuses. And and here's the bottom line. He just doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to do this. But you know what? God is calling him, and this is going to happen. God says, look, Aaron's going to do the speaking, and you can perform these miracles. And that's, we're going to go with that plan now. Now, you know what? Moses would have been better off just going to plan A and doing the speaking and the miracles because, as we all know, Aaron was, ended up being a bit of a, a mixed blessing for Moses. This is the guy who later leads Israel into idolatry, creates this golden calf, and they're worshiping an idol. So Moses would have been better off just taking that first step of obedience. Nonetheless, God is using him. He's gracious. He's going to continue to use him. He's going to uh, use his abilities, and he's going to equip him to do the mission. Point number four, God determines our abilities and equips us to live on mission. See, God is the one who determines Moses' abilities, and he wants to equip him to fulfill that calling. 
So Moses is going to go. Aaron's going to help. So Moses has to leave Midian. He gets permission from his father-in-law Jethro. And uh, he's a little bit deceptive here. This is what he says to his father-in-law. He says, hey, uh, can I take my wife, your daughter, and our two children, and uh, can we go check out Egypt and see how my relatives are doing, see how everybody's doing in Egypt? And Jethro's like, yeah, for sure. Sounds like a good plan. Now, what do you think Jethro would have said if he would have said, uh, can I take your daughter and our children, and we're going to go and we're going to we're going to turn the world around in Egypt. We're, we're all leaving Egypt against the Pharaoh's orders. You know, I don't think he would have let him take his daughter and their children. So Moses is a bit deceptive. Nonetheless, he is on mission here. He gets permission and he goes. And God gives him the game plan. He says, go to Pharaoh, perform these miracles. Then God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he's not going to let the people go. Now, if you've read the rest of Exodus, you'll, you'll think, wait a minute. Later on, God holds Pharaoh completely responsible for his actions. Here it says God hardened his heart. And then later on, he's also 100% responsible. Welcome to the world of biblical paradox. It's not a contradiction. See, in our, in our mind, we want boxes for things. God's perfectly fine with Things like sovereignty and free will and human responsibility and how that all works out is really fascinating and we don't necessarily have to understand it. It's both true. God hardened his heart and he was responsible for disobeying what God was asking him to do. So interestingly enough, they end up going back to Egypt and on the way, there's a little bit of a peculiar interlude in the narrative. Moses, his wife, their children, they're on the way and God interrupts their their uh, travel, and he almost kills Moses. You're thinking, wait, what's going on here? I thought God was committed and patient and working out all the details. And Well, he is, but there's something that's going on in Moses' heart that needs to get dealt with before he can get to Egypt, and this is it. Um, in Genesis 17, it states that as, as a testimony of parents' faith in God's covenant promise, every male in Israel was to be circumcised. Moses had not done this. And this is what happens. I'll read part of this in chapter 4. On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. Then it says, after that, the Lord left them alone. So what's going on here? Well, if Moses is about to go tell uh, Egypt where it's at and that God's people are leaving and call Pharaoh to account, he needs to be walking in complete obedience and integrity. And Moses cannot be the deliverer if he's not even obeying God on this simple command that's supposed to be a testimony to your faith in God's covenant promise. So their son is circumcised, God spares Moses' life, and now Moses can get on with the mission. So they go to Egypt. Moses and Aaron come together. They call the elders of Israel together. Aaron tells them everything that God told Moses. They believe him. Moses does the miracles. They believe him even more. The people are convinced and they worship God. People are convinced and they worship God. So you see, Moses' excuses were completely unfounded. This was the scenario all the time. God said it was going to happen. It happened. Moses and Aaron are working together. They're going to deliver the people out of Egypt. 
Now, as we close this morning, I want to encourage us. We're on mission too. God's called us into his kingdom. He's called us to kingdom service. We're actually ambassadors of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So this is what we're doing. Wherever we're at, through our lives, through our actions, through our gentle words, through the attractiveness of our lives, living in obedience to God, we're proclaiming Jesus and his message of reconciliation. That's good news to everybody around us. This is our mission that God has for us today. I want to encourage us, if you feel like you haven't been connected to this mission, if you feel like you're not passionate about where you're at, whatever vocation you have, the, the neighborhood you live in, your friend, if you don't feel like you're connected to this, I encourage you to take some time. This is Easter week. Do your R&R journal. Read and respond from the scriptures. Uh, meditate on God's word this week leading up to Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And recommit yourself to being on mission being an ambassador of the good news wherever God has you. Even today as we close the service, I encourage you, if you'd like to pray with somebody about this, you can go to the uh, prayer area to my right and a prayer team member will be happy to pray with you. Would you join me as we close in prayer this morning? God, we're so grateful for your word, God. It's truly God-breathed and inspired. And it's useful, God. Even Exodus, so much hope and grace and truth here for us in the book of Exodus. God, I pray that you would empower all of us to be in tune with what you're calling us to do in kingdom service in this world. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you don't know Jesus personally, you might know about Jesus. Maybe you go to church from time to time. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sins once for all time, and then follow him wholeheartedly, empowered by him, if you want to do that, raise your hand. Make eye contact with me and I'll connect you with um, someone from the prayer team. We'll pray with you after the service. For the rest of us, let's be encouraged as we enter the week leading up to Easter. God, we want to make a difference for you. Fill us with your presence and your spirit as we're on mission in this world to announce good news to our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Blessings to you as we uh, enter the Holy Week and look forward to connecting with you again at the Good Friday service, 7 p.m. here at Bethany Church.